founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, PK, thank you for joining me on the podcast today, my friend. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Well, tell us, how, how in the world did this company get started? I think, Drew, uh, for me, it was quite simple. I didn't know much else, basically. So, whole of my career was spent basically just uh, doing analytics, risk management, and uh, uh, financial services, basically. And I had also had roles as chief risk officer in a bunch of financial services uh, companies. And it basically, the need will make clear that the instrumentation that currently exists in financial services companies needs to change very dramatically because fundamentally, you can actually meet and exceed customer needs uh, that have changed over the last uh, decade dramatically, but also in the process, grow the credit availability dramatically. So really, we think of our vision at Synaptic as creating instrumentation and infrastructure so that the credit availability can be dramatically increased in the country. That's our mission, basically. And okay. really, I think this was a matter of saying, this is something that I think I know deeply as a practitioner and uh, as the person who has actually done the whole thing myself. Uh, it was a matter of time saying, okay, now I feel ready uh, that I can pull different people together and really assemble a great team that can actually build out the product that actually brings the really transform the technology that is used in credit decisions. That's that's how we got started. Wow. Okay, so you are your your career before this was in financial services and you you noticed that there was a growing need uh, that wasn't being addressed. I don't know that world quite as well. Uh, hmm. help me understand what the current solution to that problem was and what you were what you were yeah. thinking, I think we could go create something better. Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, when you apply for a credit card or a personal loan, uh, you know, the financial services company that you're working with actually looks at your application, pulls out your bureau data, yeah. right? And based on that, they determine how much credit to give you, what price uh, to give you the credit at, and so forth, or, or in, in some cases, whether to give you credit at all, right? So, you find that that decision is made based on uh, an algorithm or a score that is calculated, you might have heard about FICO score, for example. Right? Right. Most lenders actually use them in some shape or form. Some people also have their own scores. But I think a couple of things have changed. What has changed is now there is more and more information available about the customer, right? So you can actually find more data apart from your data that can actually enrich your understanding of the customer and enhance your ability to actually give them a better product, basically. Right, so that's the problem that we are deciding to solve. We are saying that the way you use those scores currently is limiting in terms of the amount of information that you are using on the customer, and also the prediction quality. All right, you're you're actually making a prediction about whether the customer is likely to pay you back or not. Right, it also can be made better using more new age algorithms, AI, and stuff like that. So that's where we come in. We've solved that problem, and if you think about it, what happens is if you have sharper ways to decide who are the right folks to give credit to and how much credit can they handle, what is the right price point for them, essentially what you will end up doing 
is you'll increase the credit availability basically right because you are not you, you're not using the old blunt instrumentation that that actually exists wow that makes total sense so you basically were thinking there's it's a little outdated or it's limited in the in the amount of information they were using to make that decision and then how did you go what kinds of things were you able to pull into that decision making process that maybe uh, weren't being accessed before like buying behavior or what kind of data was out there that you had to go and access so you can access a variety of data sources right so you have now data sources like lexis nexus uh, has a level of information about assets that people have right yeah. people also individually are willing to give information when they want something uh, you know when that when there is a genuine need and they're looking for a particular product particular uh, financial product they're willing to actually engage with the financial institution and say okay i'll provide you this information right now the process is very you know cut and dry with respect to saying you follow this process you give this information if your score is below this level we'll deny you credit i have myself had stories where you know i was denied for credit uh, you know a particular credit card that i applied for so i give this to you often but <clears throat> I was kind of, as you can imagine, too, I was hurt that, you know, oh, this is what I do for a living and you're denying yeah. you know, how that, that, that makes sense, right? And then I started thinking about it, why, why that is happening. That is happening because I'm someone who carries only one credit card. And once in a while, that credit card gets maxed out with respect to living, right? Because I'll book this holiday that I'm going with the family and so yeah. forth. Right? So I'm close to 100% utilized on that card, basically. That, by the way, utilization is the single biggest driver of your risk coefficient, or, or so, one other than other than being delinquent, right? And it's, right, that's your remark, right? Because this is the credit that you have given, and just because you are using that credit, yeah. you are penalized for saying, "Okay, you are probably credit hungry." Now, in general, at an overall population level, there is when you do that analysis, it makes sense. But individually, it doesn't make sense for me because I just keep one card. And right. this company actually had the opportunity to offer me a better product, which I was actually interested in taking. I would have put it in the front of my wallet, but they denied me for reasons like this, right? Because they didn't have the right instrumentation to measure my credit worthiness. If they had looked at the fact that I've never been on delinquent on any anything, if they have looked at the fact that I very rarely actually even look for a credit card or something like that, they would have been able to make a better decision. So that's really what you know, platform I love it. Okay, so when you decided to start this company, how how hard of a decision was that for you to go from a safe and secure kind of salary job to taking the risk and jumping into the entrepreneurial waters? It was actually, I think, and, and remember, Drew, unlike a lot of folks who are probably your audience, I'm still later stage in my career. I'm not an early stage entrepreneur. I'm not a young entrepreneur, right? Young at heart, but not young. <laughs> but I think the timing was right for me. It, it became very clear. What the logic, but the point you're making, I did go through a, you know, I'm a rational person, so I went through a logic. It was very simple. What is the downside to it? Okay. And I had a very good job. I used to lead a large business and, and all of that. So, calculation was very simple. Okay, what can happen? I would sink in a couple of hundred grand of my own money into this and that may go waste. I may take three years or so and figure out this is not my thing. This is not something that I would be able to do well. And then, you know, I have to go back to 
uh, corporate world and get a job. And third, I may have to take a significant salary cut. You know, if I, you know, and I made all of those calculations and said, I'm fine with those options. Mm. And then once I decided, then you realize that you would actually never do anything other than what you're doing right now. Even if it was not as successful as what Synaptic is right now, I would not go back to that world because there are lots of different advantages to doing uh, what what I'm doing uh, in the setup, uh, in the startup setup. Yeah, I experienced the same thing after after making the decision and going for it, even during the struggle when it wasn't quite working yet. I just knew I was never going back. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, man, if I could, I got, I'm going to be able to make some version of this work and yeah. the freedom, the flexibility, the decision-making power that you have. It's like, why would I ever go back to, to, to the old life? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. The biggest one for me uh, is that e- even if you have a big job in a corporate world in banks and, you know, services company, um, your ability to build something that you know is right for the future of the world yeah, limited because you're operating in a bigger beast, basically, right? That has its own mind and dynamics. So you can't change some of those macro principles of the organization, even though you actually totally disagree with them and you have a better alternative. And here, this is my baby. So I can actually, you know, I watch specific things about culture that I'm trying to build, how I want this culture to be future ready, non-hierarchical in a real sense. Yeah. I can it there, you know. Oh, yeah. You get to create your own world and you get to create the solution as you see it to the problem as you see it, right? So tell me about this. What were the what were those early years, the first, let's say the first year? What was the first year like for you in starting that company? Yeah, I think in retrospect, uh, you know, Drew, I think uh, we floundered. There was a lot of excitement, and uh, we we loved the idea that we were working on. And frankly, when we started the company, I was thinking I'll create an equivalent of a Palantir, for example. Palantir. I don't know if you've heard about the company. This is a big, big data company, very popular, very large now. Um, and we were thinking we'll create a version of that. They do a lot of government work, basically. They work with CIA and so forth. Okay. And our view was that we'll create a company that will actually do that kind of work, but for banks and financial services companies. But that was too broad. So in the beginning, we were kind of trying to just build out our tech stack. We were trying to hire developers. We were trying to think about what will be you know, our roadmap and stuff like that. We got a few customers that started trying some versions of our uh, software early on. But I think... I think in retrospect, there was a lot of excitement, but not enough focus in mm. that space. I had not figured out exactly what we will be doing, what will become big. And I, I feel in retrospect that, you know, I should have, I could have focused better. But I think it was a good time. There was a lot of positive energy and we built out the technology that now is the base of what uh, our current and writing platform is. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that's what, most companies go through like you have the general idea and then you bring it to market in a sense and you start to realize like oh it doesn't really fit there as well as i thought maybe it fits over there and you kind of you find your target you almost find your target right so how did you what there are a few lucky ones who are very clear and who do the upfront thinking process and all of that and i think i did think upfront about what i was going to do but i Realize very quickly that that was too broad, really. So that was my learning. 
So how did you, how did you end up narrowing that focus? I think it, it was very clear. The math was very clear, right? If you wanted to build a broad platform company which is playing across different use cases, that takes a lot more money. And when we really started understanding the marketplace, we realized that there were companies that had already made progress in that direction, right? So there were companies like DataRobo, H2O, and so forth, who had actually been there spending literally hundreds of millions of dollars building that kind of product, and they were five years ahead of us. Wow. So the question for us was, yes, I think if given time and money, we could actually differentiate ourselves compared to those guys. But why bother? Because the world is too big. There are lots of good problems to solve. So what is the problem that you know how to solve better? And that is risk management. There are very few people who are founders of companies who have themselves been chief risk officers in their financial services company. Use that to your advantage. And that's the way we kind of pivoted very quickly to saying, you know, let's just focus on, uh, you know, consumer credit underwriting and uh, solve for that. So in that case, I'm assuming the bank is the primary, is the actual customer? Yeah, it's bank, credit unions, auto finance companies, uh, folks like that. How difficult did you find it initially to get to get them to sign on board? I think a uh, very interesting question, right? Banks are hard to work with, right? In, in the sense that, uh, you know, especially for them to buy startup technology is, is a long cycle thing. Uh, I was quite fortunate, to be fair, along with my, uh, you know, uh, early team. Uh, we had lots of connections into big banks. Really. So because I come from the world myself, GE, risk management, so forth. So we have friends in all of these bigger financial institutions and bigger banks. The network was there. So I absolutely was very fortunate to get hearing at multiple places, basically, and we ended up doing lots of very good proofs of concept and demonstrating the power of our technology and uh, algorithms. So that worked out very well. But then at some point time uh, later, we actually figured out that there is another market that is actually underserved, right? So credit unions, smaller lenders that cannot afford to have, uh, you know, the latest and the best technology. They, they cannot buy that, definitely not even use that if, they bought some of that technology. So we ended up going after them. And then we found that those are people who really need us. Basically. Huh. So in fact, just like what you were saying, Drew, uh, we used the pandemic period very well for doing that. So we got into that community and started building relationships with them. Uh, started just doing a lot of sharing of information. I think very much like what you are trying to do, right? Once yeah. you share stuff in good faith, business comes to you, right? Relationships start getting built. So that actually happened, and as soon as people returned after the pandemic uh, or the peak of the pandemic, we started winning business basically from lots of smaller lenders. So right now we are seeing a glut of interest basically in, in the platform that we have because we have been at it for a while. People have heard us and known, known of us. Uh, so that's that's how the story turned out. I love it. I love it. What is what have you found to be the most surprising so far about the journey you've been on as a as an entrepreneur? I think the surprising part, uh, let me think. I think surprising parts have, have, have been changing, right? I definitely thought that with the relationships we have and the product that we had built, I really thought that we would be able to sell into 
uh, bigger brands quickly. Yeah, yeah, just like this. That was a bit of a surprise, negative in a negative way. I think in a positive way, I always felt that I always when I argue with myself about what we are doing, uh, and it's a bit technical argument. I used to say, how can it not work? What is there for it not to work? Right? This is basically saying I want to do the right thing for the customer. I want to do it faster. I want to reduce the cost of lending for the lenders. I want to make sure that they can grow faster. This is what the tool is. I have proven that it is working in large number of cases so far. How can it not work? Yeah. It was just a matter of time that you know it's there is a time for the idea. So that time had to come, and I think was after you know pandemic in a way was good for us. I would say hmm. because what happened was it it crystallized that whole need of a digital intelligent experience that customers want when they are not able to sit right across uh, you know the banker in, in the branch basically so i think uh, you know that's that that was a bit of surprise it took us a while but i think uh, i i never had a doubt, doubt that this would happen it's just a question of uh, timing yeah yeah i love that so tell me about if we've been looking at the product side right now and the idea and the, and the fit in the market but on the business building side, what has that journey been like for you? And having to build a team, make your first hires, start to think through the, the culture that you want to build. Uh, tell me a little bit about that, that, that story. Yeah. So as you can imagine, right, that each of them is a story, right, on their own, right? So each person that you hire in the beginning is, is a story. And we talk about those stories in the background. But really, it was... Uh, through the network, there were a couple of things that were very clear. Uh, I did need a lot more stronger technology experience in, in the company. So I was trying to hire different kind of people than I had worked with. So there were not a lot of people. I didn't get a lot of people from my existing set of old colleagues and stuff. We I needed to kind of develop that network and get, get different sort of people. So that was one thing that uh, had to be done differently. I think the other thing that was very interesting was it was very clear that we will need and salespeople are always very difficult to hire, but getting people who understand how you sell software mm. is a deal altogether, right? There is a you know different kind of orientation that you need to selling software where in many cases people can think, oh, you're actually you can actually solve for this problem, the problem that we are solving. Can be solved as a services, and we were not trying to sell, sell it as a service. So it was very important for us to find the right set of people who have that skill with which they can actually evolve and support the development of software sales cycle. So that was one very interesting thing. On the culture, I think it was very clear always, right? There was no doubt in my head that I'm trying to create a culture here where my culture is about. Excellence, and I fully believe that some of the hierarchical uh, controls that are put in bigger organizations, uh, processes, and controls that are put, they they curb the creativity. In fact, if you see the banks, that has been done very systematically. And lots of my colleagues, when we meet, um, you know, for drinks, they basically, uh, you know, wholeheartedly agree with this point that essentially from 2008, because of the regulatory pressures. Banks have been pretty much forced to tell people, guys, don't think creatively. That's not why you are there. You yeah. just follow, just keep watching stuff. 
keep watching for every single risk forget about the opportunities right now so really i think it has molded the culture to become very slow and it just doesn't uh, fuel creativity of any type initiative and ownership of uh, you know of, of a good quality so those were things that i was very clear about i i i celebrate excellence and i love to learn from uh, folks who are around me they give me a lot of positive energy and for that in return what they get is a working environment where you know just because i am the boss and founder it doesn't mean anything we can have a debate about reasoned debate with data about anything basically mm. so i think that's the culture that uh, we're trying to create and there was no doubt about that ever you mentioned something earlier about the culture where you said you know i want to make them it was a future ready is that the term you use tell me mm-hmm. tell me what you mean by that i think you see i think as this is a more philosophical topic topic so i hope I, and and remember i am the phd type guru so i i can t- tend to get drawn into that kind of question very i easy. love it let's go there <laughs> so don't drag me too far down, down that track but here's the thing when you think about our lives and how societies have changed right welfare is increasing we are not going to work actually for jerks basically for very long most of us fundamentally are not going to be wanting for wanting to work for jobs most of us are going to overcome the need for uh more money and say okay now money is important but beyond the point i'm not going to take the pain and be in a toxic sort of environment really, right i'm yeah. going to be i want to be surrounded by people who are optimistic about future who are solving problems which are bigger than us because we do as humanity we have problems which are bigger than our individual selves really right yeah and so so i think a little bit while you solve for here and now and solve for your business and stuff like that i always tell my people that i am also trying to assemble a team of people that will create liberating wealth in the process of building synaptic gen 1 and then we'll go on some of us definitely and build gen 2 which is not bigger than uh you know any of us individually yeah and when money is not a constraint what would you do when you didn't want money what would you do really so i'm trying to also get people together on that kind of theme really and i don't know exactly what the theme is it's quite rough but i'm excited about the possibility i love that so what that reminds me of and tell me if if i'm on the right page as you is some of the research that come that has come out around the idea of money as a motivator right and so if we if we break it down into like extrinsic motivators and intrinsic motivators that money is certainly a motivator up until the point that your needs are taken care of and from that point on we're not very motivated by money anymore and it switches to intrinsic like do i feel passionate about my work am i connected to something bigger than me do i have autonomy and creativity that's that's what the research seems to be indicating that I've read is that is that kind of what we're talking about like once money is kind of dealt with at the basic level we need to have something bigger that's exactly it, right and i think here is the difference drew a lot of people know those things right a lot of people have seen and read those most pieces of research they've hired consultants to do this stuff but to do this in the context of a big company is really hard actually, yeah right? all the best wills in the world it is very difficult to do basically right at startups founders like me have a unique opportunity just just 
this is not going to happen. So every day I have calls with different team members, including my HR leader, and we'll actually talk about simple behaviors that probably are going a little bit offline, right? Off, off the track, basically, on that direction, right? We watch them, put a stop to that, do a little bit of coaching by the side, one-on-one or in small groups and stuff, so that we can preserve this track that we are building towards, you know, doing something bigger than yourself, being creative, giving autonomy. Because all the people ultimately are coming from conventional organizations, right? Yeah. So solving problems when they are in a problem is different. So it takes a bit of doing to kind of keep them on this track and build this culture and sustain it. That's what I mean by uh, I, I think I think quite hard about it and I'm very serious about saying you can tell. a big company will actually feel differently. Our people will absolutely feel very differently. Um, that's that's my promise to myself. Well tell me about this. You know, autonomy is something that individuals crave for themselves. Leaders crave for their people in the future because it means less things have to be, you know, micromanaged or handheld. But it can often be a confusing or even scary thing for a leader or a founder because they think, well, how do I know you're going to, how do I know you're going to do it well? You know? Uh, so in your mind, how do you move people towards more and more autonomy? You know, I think this is a great point, Do again, and I think you do this for a living, so you probably think about this more deeply. But I think the work begins with yourself first, mm. right? So my start on this, and this is what, uh, I would say pandemic has really helped me last one and a half years because I have not had to travel that much and all that. You know, it has centered me in a certain way, right? It has helped me understand and discover myself. And then I realized, oh, I'm, I have become successful throughout my life, two decades, more than two decades of career. I have created success because I'm very good at micromanagement because I know something very well. I know it better than others. I can do it better than the others and I can teach them how to do it better than others. Yeah. That's how I'm successful as an individual contributor and then as a manager and then as a business leader, right? So I got to unlearn that first. What do I need to let go first, right? I need to be my feelings and start letting go of stuff and start saying, okay, once I learn to let go of stuff that I'm hanging on to, then I can figure out Okay, what control processes do I need, right? What, how to create an outcome-based measure, right? And again, I think pandemic has forced our hands on this topic now, right? Because you're not seeing people, right? So you can't be in that business. You'll drive yourself mad trying to micromanage their calendars, trying to watch everything. It's just not going to work. So I have been able to accelerate the journey and watch myself. Because I would say I was, you know, really, you know, I wanted to be in that place, but I wasn't there in reality. Yeah. And I had changes with myself. And then I had to find a way to convince my team, which is still a work in progress. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll continue to get better than that. Yeah, it's scary, man. I mean, this is your baby. You, yeah. It's like, that's the hardest part is like, we want it. Yet, it's like, help me trust you is the feeling I, I hear from a lot of founders. Like, I want to, and then they can't tell often if their hesitancy is because they're actually spotting something in the person or yeah. whether it's just something that they have in general that they're having a hard time letting go of. And it sounds like some of it, you're recognizing self-awareness. Like, oh, I think there's some stuff I've got to let go of. Yeah. Is, that, is that what I'm hearing? Like, oh, I think I've got a little control issue. I think to me, this whole discourse needs to change from trust. To me, this isn't about trust. 
trust. So I can, when I talk to people, here is how I, I explain to them. Hey guys, we, when we engage, we are all going through anxieties of various types, right? And the only thing that we can do if we are a solid, trusting team is to have conversations about all of those things, which basically means as a founder, I will expose you to what worries me, what I'm going through. Sometimes conventional thinking is that founders, you suck it up, you deal with whatever you're dealing with, you're not worried about cash flow, you're not worried about acceleration, you're not worried about raising money, all of that stuff. Right. I'm going to put that out to you so that you can understand. That's why I'm anxious about this topic. And then you got to tell me that when I do certain thing, what are you kind of becoming unnecessarily pressurized about, which is unproductive. And I'll try to think about that and see if I can do it differently. So to me, the conversation is, guys, I have bold trust with you guys, but that doesn't mean that I won't check on the quality of something. I'm, you know, I'm detail-oriented person. And we are building, what we are building is deeply technical. So I do get into a level of technical detail because I think it helps the company. It'll, we are building the bedrock of it. So I can't step away from it just because, you know, I want to give people an impression of trust. Yeah. Trust to me is a different level saying, I trust you as a human being. My life and my career choices are in your hand. And I'm willing to demonstrate that by doing harder things in terms of letting go of lots of my hopes, basically. Yeah. So the opportunity that exists to work closely when you create that conversation. Yeah, I love that. I love the honest candidness in that conversation and the... You're showing them trust and being vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. Like vulnerability is, is in, in one sense, giving someone the opportunity to hurt you, you know? So that like, if you think about like an animal in the wild, vulnerability would be showing a part of itself that if they, you know, it's like if you put, bit me here, you could kill me, right? And so same thing in people. Like if we share our feelings, if we share our, our cares, our concerns, our worries, that in itself is trust. But in the business sense, it sounds like the trust, but verify. Like I'm totally willing to trust you, but like my other, it's also my role to verify that that work is being done up to our standards and that kind of thing. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. And and then you demonstrate, right? I think over time, people, you know, and we have. I've been very fortunate. We have had people hang around for a reasonable period of time together, and then people realize that this is meant well, right? Because yeah. now they're seeing me that. You know, this was something that I used to get worked up about and I'll ask, oh, show me this and show me that before you send it and all that. And now I'm like, I'm not even asking that because I know it is working, basically. Yeah, yeah. You sort it out and I moved on to the next thing, basically. So then over time, I think people start getting more close. I love that. Is there anything else, the almost the philosophical uh, lens that you think about when building high-performing teams, building a, a productive or a... You mentioned earlier, maybe productive is actually the opposite word, but like a results-driven company. I think it's just, I think there are a couple of elements to that. One, I think we talked about a bunch of these trust and those kind of uh, issues. I think those are there. I think people fundamentally hanker for expansion. Hmm. The way I think about this is the concept of expansion, because I hanker for it. Now, I'm not, I may not be very typical in that respect, um, Drew, but I think fundamentally um, most people, especially the kind that we hire, right, who are high caliber, intelligent people working with technology, algorithms and all that, they're fundamentally wanting to find a way to expand themselves in various dimensions. One of the dimensions of expansion, which is most obvious is 
about some money and all that stuff. People are trying to find a way to learn something. And they're trying to find a way to do things that nobody has done before, right? If you can create that vision and that opportunity, it creates a tailwind that nothing else creates. Rest of the stuff is very simple, right? You have to pay people what you have to pay them. That's easy, right? And, you, and you know, we are a company where you know, paying people well enough is not a problem. So our task is easy with respect to them. So I call this, this expansion combined with another construct that I learned earlier in my life was discretionary effort is important, right? People put discretionary effort if you align with their dimension of expansion, right? So I don't know if I'm making sense at all. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Right? It's like you say, okay, this is this really what you want to do? And they get inspired by the vision and the ability that they will have to create this phenomenal new global uh, credit infrastructure, for example, in the process, they will build machine learning like nobody has built before. They will build delivery technology like nobody has built before. They'll solve customer issues like nobody has solved before. And they'll change the world because there will be more credit out there, which is what our customers are already saying. Yeah. And this aligns with lots of people's expansion dimension. And then you get then you get discretionary effort. Then there is no work-life balance. People figure that out on their own. Yeah, yeah. No, you are energized by what you're doing. You find efficiency in, in what you're doing. Hours only, we can do so much, so many hours only, right? People find smarter ways to get stuff done. And that's what excites me. That's what makes my hackles rise when I come into work. Because yeah. I think that is, you know, moving in that direction very nicely. Amazing. So, so what I'm hearing is you've hired a bunch of high caliber people and like many high caliber people, they want to keep growing and learning and evolving and it sounds like you're providing that space where as long as it is you know in the same direction of of the mission of the company they have some of the latter ability to explore and to grow and to learn and try new things and be and be motivated by that right that's absolutely that's absolutely what i would i would make yeah. yeah it makes me think of, uh, i think google does a, a similar thing right where they they have a, a period of time where you're allowed to go work on whatever project you want and come and present it to the company. I think it's that same idea of like, hey, we want you to think creatively. We want you to be uh, discretionary effort, like the thing that you would be really excited to go out and build, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think I think a lot of, in the tech world, a lot of innovation is going on, to be fair, right? I think Netflix has a slightly different spin on it. Um, Spotify has a different way of dealing with some of these things. So I think there are lots of very interesting pieces of experiments that are going on. And I think as a smaller, younger startup, our opportunity is unique, basically, right? Because we we can just build a core around a kernel like that and just expand on that more dramatically than a large organization will be able to do. Yeah. Yeah, the expression doesn't almost matter. To me, it's it's what's the what's the un, the thing underneath it all, and I think you hit the nail on the head. It's that desire to expand. I love the, I love the way you put that. Now, at this stage of the company, what would you say is the biggest hurdle that you foresee or or know that you have to overcome for you for you all to get to the next, in a sense, the next level of your mission? Yeah, I think you see. I think we are nearly there at the point of saying that we have taken zero to one. I think that we have been able to do, right? And that's, it takes a lot of doing. I think doing zero to one is harder uh, to do. Yeah. 
one to many is there are methods to do that, right? But those are the challenges now that we are going to experience, right? That when we have thousands of clients, how are we going to scale this whole system in terms of technology, in terms of algorithms? Um, those are the kind of challenges that we have to think about. And that's the outcome, right? I mean, that's, that's the backbone of your platform because we are a software business. Yeah. But also along with that, how will you keep up with uh, building the organization to support that, right? Uh, how will you build out customer success functions that make sure that clients are getting the value at that scale, when you are at that scale? So we are just starting to think about those kind of things. So to me, it's that uh, challenge of scaling that is now starting to come in. And it will mean people challenges. It will mean process challenges. Um, the only good news is, uh, you know, I've worked on scale before. Uh, yeah. And I hope uh, I'll learn uh, how to do that in the setting. What's the uh, what's the team size right now? It's an Aptic. We are about 100 people. Wow, <laughs> you've built something significant already. That zero to one is no, is no joke, right? Uh, so now you're saying we're we're pretty closely established. Like we have we've established this product, this service, it's working, and now it's about magnifying it. Now it's about how do we actually saturate or get out there more. In, in, into the the other opportunities is that is that it? That's that's what it is. Yeah. Okay. When you a slightly different question, and we'll, I know we're we're running close to time here, so we'll we'll get to the lightning round questions here in a second. But I'm just curious with your kind of brilliance and your excitement for the future. When you look into the future for yourself, for what this company could be, where your 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 professional impact is taking you, what most excites you? when you think and dream and look at the future of, of what you're building? You know, I think the most exciting part is same expansion, Drew. And I'll just tell you, uh, I think you, you are particularly skilled, so I appreciate you kind of drawing me into this conversation. But I think for me, what it means is, for me, it is making me do stuff that I didn't think I was capable of, mm. right? I didn't grow up thinking that I'll create this massive business for a long time, actually. You know, I actually wanted to be in academics. I did a PhD because I thought I'll, I'll go in an academic institution, right? So being in the corporate world was a bit of a chance and serendipity for me. But this gives me an opportunity to really, you know, create a global, big business, impact lots of lives, build lots of relationships, partners, investors, uh, team members, clients, right? To me, all of those linkages that are happening, uh, they make me greater than myself. It makes They make me feel that, oh, wow, I'm expanding. And what I am is actually becoming thinner and leaner, basically, right? But I'm more connected to people. I'm, I'm becoming bigger in a, in a way, in a certain way, without being too much of me, basically, right? And to me, that is exciting. I find that good because I think once you start really thinking of the world, saying that we are living in an interconnected world uh, and really just feeling that interconnection, that you are part of the system. And yes, you have had the privilege and opportunity to do something that seems like, uh, you know, uh, a good thing to uh, do. It's uh, it's a grace basically that you have. So I feel I've had that grace and, you know, that means for me. All right. So you're talking about the more you are a part of community and new people you meet and that it's stretching you and growing you but you also said 
thinner. And I can't remember the other adjective you used, but are you referring to almost like um, a little bit of uh, uh, losing of the ego? Is that, is that kind of what you meant in the process? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That like over self-identification kind of thing? Right, right. That's exactly what happens, right? You, my hypothesis is that, and, and you know, there are people who create big empires in a different way, right? And I'm, I'm not into that game. But for me personally, what it means is that expansion is, as you're expanding, it's almost like you make the balloon bigger, the density goes down inside, right? Um, so that is exactly what you said, right? Less of ego, more of saying, okay, I am what I am, but my experiences, what is what make, make me me, right? And those experiences have taken into account the external world, right? In my relationships and how I interact. In the process, if I am becoming bigger, clearly I would also become less dense. Really, I would become less certain about who I am and what I know, what my views on some things are. Because, you know, you're connecting with so many people and you're seeing so many different things go on. And I've, I've been around a lot of conversations around self, ego, person, growth, all that kind of stuff. That's the first time I've ever heard that. And that is really profound. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, so I, I, I'm gonna, I gotta give you credit, PK. That is, that is a really, um, beautiful way of thinking about it. And I agree wholeheartedly. I think I grew up thinking the opposite. Yeah, almost subconsciously. And, and in particular, when you said that I know less, I just always assumed growth meant I knew more. Yeah, that I would be more certain about how the world works and I'd be more certain about the universe or God or whatever. And I've kind of found the opposite where you actually lean more towards mystery or complexity or openness, if that makes sense. That's exactly what it is, right? Because this is conditioning, right? We are conditioned to believe, right? Yeah. That, you know, you have to project powers, you have to project certainty. And I think in short term, you can actually get an advantage by doing those things, right? There's a whole lot of which says that projection of power. In fact, I remember in earlier stages of my career, one of my bosses actually gifted me a book, which was uh, about, uh, you know, power, it's, I forget exact title, but power, 40 rules of power or something like that. And one of the rules is keep people in suspended terror, never reveal your hand, right? You're like, really? This is what you want me to do? Right? So it took me a while to evolve to a level that, you know, I could bridge to say, no, that's not me. Maybe there is it for some people. I'm not going to try and build out my career and my life around those principles. Finally, I had the courage to kind of do, do it the way I think it should be done. Yeah. yeah, you're right. It, it, it actually can be an advantage. And that's the tricky part about it is it can get to your head in certain times where if you are the biggest personality in the room or you are you sound the most confident, people will follow you. But it doesn't mean you were always right. <laughs> and, and eventually you get to decide, do I want to play the game a different way? And that, that's how it sounds like you are. That's how, you know, for me, I'm like, I'm just going to be myself. I, I want to I wanna tell you if I think I can help you. Yeah. I'll let you know. If I can't, I'll let you know. Like I, th- I think being authentically yourself has always has value and it, has, and it will meet a need in the world. You just got to find what that is, right? And you'll be happier with yourself. Ultimately, yeah. that's your will, right? So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, PK, this has been amazing. Uh, I am so excited to have this level of a conversation. I want to get into our lightning round questions and then I'll let you get back to your day, my friend. So, 
Question number one, these are five questions we've asked every founder that's been on the podcast so far. If you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would that message be? Personal excellence, create something that has never been created before. Okay. Say that one more time. Personal excellence, create yes. something that has never been created before. Yeah, I love that. Do you feel like that message has already sunk into the organization or is that a work in progress getting that across to people? I'm trying. I'm trying. Every day. <laughs> every day. Sowing that seed every day, right? Yeah. All right. Question number two. What is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also, what was the worst? I think uh, the best advice was choose something very specific in terms of use case and just keep very specific focus on growing that particular offering, basically. So that was the best advice that I ever got. Um, I think the worst advice, uh, I think there, there's no bad advice in my mind. It's just that I won't remember the advice that was not good. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> good dodge, good dodge. Okay, question number three. What causes you the most stress or worry currently as the leader of this organization? I think I worry sometimes that we may not be doing everything on the ground to meet the vision that we have for the clients, to meet the needs that we can meet for the clients. Mm -hmm. Because we are still building out the whole system and the organization around it. I sometimes worry that, you know, is that happening enough? Really? So I, I need a lot of validation. That's why I meet lots of customers, ask them. I think we generally have a very good, uh, very strong NPS, if you will, from customers. If you follow us on LinkedIn, you'll see lots of our customers are talking about us and are being huge sponsors. So I really am thankful to them. But that's one thing that I worry about. Totally makes sense. Especially with your drive for excellence and service. And we're always going to be wondering, we really could we be doing better? Could we be, you know, serving them at a higher quality, uh, even when you are? So question number four, what is your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal? We want to create the most intelligent, pervasive global credit uh, decision system that world has ever seen. That's what we want to do. Cool. We want to make sure that everybody is using this. Uh, you know, in, in, in a few years' time, everybody's leveraging that and the system continuing to get better and better. Love it. All right, question number five. This is going to be a fun, kind of creative, philosophical question. Uh, so I'm curious to see how you interact with this question. It's like an e-plot test. How do you react to this question? Um, if you could hop into a DeLorean and you get to go back to your past, but there's only one rule. You only get to say one thing out the driver's side window as you drive by. When would you go back in your past and what message would you deliver to that younger version of yourself? Hmm. I mean, that, you just want one, right? Yeah. Yep. You would choose one. I think for me, it will be belief. Mm -hmm. I think, right? Like, what Ugwe in this Kung Fu Panda said, right? Yes. You remember that? <laughs> yes, Uguay, the, the turtle. Right. Yeah. So I think I, I'm naturally a skeptic of myself and I need to see myself 
do stuff before I'll admit I can actually do it. But if you want to create something, you have got to start believing earlier that you can. Yeah. And it took me a while. When I go back, I for a long time would not. I think I used to. Now I remember stories of when people actually used to give me pointers saying, "Why would you not do this? And why would you not do this?" And I didn't take myself too seriously. I didn't believe. Yeah. And uh, that took a while. So stand to hear that a little bit more. A little bit more. Uh, PK, this has been awesome, my friend. Thank you so much for making this time to be on the podcast. This has been a truly inspiring and, and, and fun conversation for me. So I really appreciate you being here today. I have enjoyed it more than uh, any other podcast we have done so far. So thank you, Drew. Great yes. questions. Awesome. Thank you. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.